Three, two, one. Hey everyone, I'm Jerome Goodrich. And I'm Thomas Counts. And you're listening to Collaborative Clap. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> I spit all over my mic. Oh my God. Oh man. Hey everyone, I'm Jerome Goodrich. And I'm Thomas Counts. And you're listening to Collaborative Craft, a podcast brought to you by Eighthlight. So, Jerome, who are we talking to today? Thomas, you will not believe it. We are talking to the charity majors. (laughs) (laughs) A little excited. Charity is the founder and CTO of Honeycomb which is an observability platform. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Thomas, why are you excited to talk to Charity? Me? Yes. (laughs) Okay, full disclosure, before we really started diving into, or before we knew that Charity had agreed to come talk with us, I only a little bit knew what observability was. Mm -hmm. I definitely didn't know what Ollie was. Thank you for explaining that to me, Jerome. (laughs) Is it Ollie or O11Y? It's called Ollicast. Oh, okay. Uh, Charity's podcast. So I'm I'm a I'm a stick with Ollie. Okay. Fair I trust her. But yeah, I didn't really know what it was. I knew it was something about high cardinality, high dimension, uh, cross slicing, dicing events. Buzzword, buzzword. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't really know. And then, lo and behold. Just like Charity generously agreed to talk with us, she shares so generously across the internet, across Twitter, across her podcast, across the website. I mean, it's just a wealth of information. So what I quickly learned was, oh, I have the problems uh, that <laughs> observability is here to solve. And yeah, I think a lot of the the questions that we would have otherwise asked Charity were answered. So I'm really excited because I think we have an opportunity to ask some questions that she may not have heard before. Let's hope. How about you? What What's your background with Ollie? Uh, and, and why are you <laughs> excited to, to talk with Charity Majors Oh, today? man. I mean... I feel like I have to say her last name. Sorry. Charity Majors. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, I'm with you. Like, I have been tangentially aware of charity, mostly because of the excellent article, the engineering manager pendulum. And I think I I probably read that, I don't know, when it first came out back in like 2017 or something like that and thought it made a ton of sense and then kind of forgot about it. And then we booked charity and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I've read it. Like this was such an influential piece for me. And the observability stuff was kind of, was secondary. And then I started getting into it and I was like, okay, I've heard this buzzword before. We've talked about it on clients and stuff. And I mean, she is the expert in observability. And so that alone makes me very excited to talk to her. But I'm also just kind of a neophyte when it comes to this stuff. Observability after, you know, doing the prep for this episode and with my experience on clients, it makes a lot of sense to me. But it's not something that I have had a lot of experience about, at least in the way that she talks about observability. 
because I, I've always thought of observability and monitoring as kind of synonyms, which I know is, Ooh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Careful. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not going to. She'll, she might hear this later, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to admit that to her face to face. And yeah, so I'm just very curious to hear kind of straight from the horse's mouth. What is all the fuss about? Like, why should we care about this? What is the future of it? Is it really as important as I've been led to believe in the weeks kind of leading up to this episode? It's like I have an encyclopedia in front of me and I <laughs> just want to ask it all the questions. Yeah, no, totally. And I love that you mentioned that particular post around the, the management pendulum, um, forgetting the name, but we'll include it in the show notes because yeah, she's also shared and provided so much guidance around just like how you should organize your team. And I don't know about anyone else. When I read it, I'm like, this makes total sense kind of like cuts the cruft around the, you know, pomp around hierarchies and team dynamics and team structures. It's like, look, we want to get work done. Let's get out of our own way. It's no BS. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I love that you mentioned that because that's the other thing. Like there's so much technical expertise that she has, and then there's so much organizational expertise that she has. So I cannot wait to dive in. Let's do it. Without further ado, Charity Majors. Thank you so much for being with us today, Charity. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have you. Just to dive right in with something maybe a little more philosophical, I'm curious about what being a software engineer, what that role means to you. I don't consider myself a software engineer, by the way. I consider myself an operations engineer. And to me, I feel like the business people are the why, the software engineers are the what, and the ops people are the how. It's what gets built. Well, you know, that's how software engineers work. It's how that value gets delivered to users. That's how ops people work. And the business ultimately, why does it exist? Well, so business is the why. So just at a super high level, I, I would say that software engineers, they create value. It's such an amazing time to be alive because if you think of every other, you know, we get shit on by other engineers, but, you know, it takes a lot longer to build an interstate highway or, or a bridge or something than it does to, like, build stuff in software. We get to iterate so quickly that our discipline is advancing so fast. And we can just, you know, turn out prototypes and, and you know, languages and, like, models on the, on the fly and, like, all the other engineering disciplines, you know, they're advancing like like a snail compared to us. And we're like, you know, Roger Rabbit, just like bounding down, you know. And, and so like, I, I think it's just, it's such an abstract way of working, right? It's all in your head, which is both good and bad, but it's all in your head, <laughs> you know. And like, so I've started using the terms like value, which used to creep me out as an engineer. Like talk about value, I smell a business person coming. But just like be able to be able to create things, inventions and experiences for other people with just you and your laptop or a small team and some computers. That's kind of magical when you when you think about it. And this is where I feel like software engineers have so much more power than they tend to realize, because if they don't build it, companies stop it dead in their tracks. So I think we have a real moral and ethical responsibility to take that power of creation very seriously. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's the kind of bit of being a software 
engineer or an operations engineer, and I'll get into that distinction in a second, that I was excited to uh, talk to you about because I think you're exactly right. There's a responsibility that goes into software engineering that hasn't been like rigorously defined. We're kind of just like, get a laptop and go. But there's a lot, you know, that that we have power over and responsibility for uh, that we may not realize. Yeah. And I, and I feel like part of that is because of how quickly the industry changes. It's really hard to regulate. It's really hard to set meaningful, not bureaucratic boundaries for an industry that is, you know, that is so volatile. So it's so different six months later. To that end of the industry changing so much, you mentioned kind of like ops as being the how, and software engineers being the what, but like more and more those two things are kind of getting merged. And I'm wondering, what are the implications of that? Well, I feel like they really never should have been split in the first place because the act of writing and creating is separable from the process of looking at it and validating it, you know? And it's like, yes, we need to look for ways to specialize, but like separating the the, the what and the how are just so intimately intertwined. You need to know something about how what you're building is going to be delivered to users. You know, you need to know something about what you're delivering, right? They're just so meshed that I feel like, you know, we're always looking for abstractions and ways to like separate things so we can scale them. I see that that was a really poor scene to cut down the middle. So I think it's good that we're stitching it back together. Like nobody can be all things to all people, right? So we're going to continue to look for ways to kind of split up this work in ways that make sense, you know, the pod model and the, the tribe model and, the, you know, all of these things we're innovating with. But I just think that dev versus ops is just a boundary that, you know, that wall should never have been built. Yeah. And I, I think that attitude is imbued in honeycomb. Like it speaks the language of ops, but in a way that maybe someone who's more like feature engineering background can, can understand. So, so much that. You know, like, yes, it is fundamentally an operational tool in that it tells you things. It's your five senses for production. But, you know, in the past, ops has kind of been like this layer between devs and between all the graphs who just, we, we explained them to you. We're like, ah, your software made these graphs wiggle in this way. You know, we're just like the interpreters, which is terrible, right? You know, so like speaking the language of endpoints and variables and functions and APIs so that developers can kind of self-serve and understand in their terms what's going on. Yeah, that brings me to a question about kind of how teams get started. And I know you've talked about this before, particularly on your blog, but I'm wondering if I work on a team and maybe none of us have operational experience and i say that out of respect for operation <laughs> engineers like what are the 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 prerequisites that that we should be focused on in order to get started with maybe using tools like honeycomb for example well whoever on that team knows the most about infrastructure is going to find themselves an ops engineer very quickly. <laughs> just, like if you if you so know your true. way around a linux shell <laughs> if you if you solve the first problem, like the first law of startups that if you know anything about it, you're immediately the expert. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just a fact of life. If you're delivering shit to users, they're going to be vocal. They're going to complain and you're going to spend a lot of your time dealing with that. So what should you know? I mean, just be resigned to that fact, I suppose. You know, there's really very little that I can say just from a comprehensive, here's your ops advice. What I will say, though, is that 
there aren't many ops founders. And very few companies have the benefit or the, the advantage of having someone do things right from the start. In my past career, I've always been the one who came in once we'd gotten some traction, and then I start unwinding all the tech debt that was already occurred, you know, and like building up to be a real company and everything. But like just being able to spin it up right from the start, you know, took two or three months. But that two or three months of, of my labor, like spinning up the infrastructure and everything, we were able to piggyback on that work for we're still reaping the benefits of it. You know, we never had to rightly design anything. We were able to sort of incrementally, you know, upgrade this, touch that, that. We've never had to do the, the security nightmare or of, you know, figuring out how to like spin up all your instances and then up again inside the VP, VPC or, you know, we've never had to deal with that. So I will say that, you know, teams are right. It's not mandatory from the beginning. You could do a lot of work without any ops expertise. But the earlier that you include some, the easier you are making it for your future selves. That gets me thinking. You're talking about, you know, building things right from the get-go. When you were building Honeycomb, I'm sure you had observability in mind. ambition. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how does Honeycomb observe itself? And is it is it just turtles all the way down? Yes, in fact, it is. <laughs> we have the Honeycomb production cluster, which... Runs. And if you think about it, it's kind of amazing. You know, we've got hundreds of customers and we run the equivalent of all of their production loads combined. And then we have another honeycomb. So in that that cluster, we, we, we're a very dog-themed company. So we've got like retrievers, the data storage layer, and Beagle, and we've got like, you know, Basenji is a little security thing. And so we're all about the puppies, right? And then we have a, of course, we have the dog food cluster which monitors production. And then we have the kibble cluster, which monitors dog food. (laughs) (laughs) And and a few other little, you know, state, like anyone can spin up, you know, a container-based, you know, entire environment for their laptop, which has another cute dog name that I forget. But yeah. Yeah, it is turtles all the way down. It is honeycomb watching honeycomb watching honeycomb. (laughs) And then I'm sure, like you said, that you are still reaping the benefits of having that from the beginning, having that mindset. Absolutely. You know, one of, I will say, you asked me that question and I actually will answer it. The most important thing anyone could do as an engineer on day one is, you know, you're setting up your CICD, right? Everyone knows that's important. Make your CICD pipeline, you know, run automatically whenever a change is checked in and push the binaries out to production. It could be a janky shell script, parts less, <laughs> but we just got used to the fact that Anytime we merge something to production, within 10 minutes, it's going to show up live. And so you just, you start like looking for it. You're like, oh, my change is going live. I'm going to watch for it. You know, it's reasonable to expect engineers to really be ownerships, owners and like stewards of their code when, when you grow up expecting that. And it's never hard. It's like the myth of that Alexander the Great would always lift up his pony, starting when he was a little boy, lift up his pony before breakfast so that when he was when it was a horse, he could still lift it up. You know, it was never hard because every day he just did it a little bit. And if you just like train a team to do it, like the thing is that if you know your code is out in 10 minutes, you're very likely to look at it. If you're pretty sure that your code is going out some point in the next one to three days, along with zero to 20 other people's code, you're never going to go look for it, right? And you severed that whole like virtuous cycle of, you're just not going to look at it. You're going to leave it up to your future self or someone else to find that bug. So this comes from one of our our recent guests, uh, Hannah Lee. And she says, 
I recently had the painful experience of trying to reconcile two different distributed tracing SDKs from two different platforms and wondered if OpenTelemetry would be a better answer. I'd love to hear about the OpenTelemetry project and how its reception has been so far. An unqualified yes. It is going much better than I expected it to. The history of these so-called game ender, like open solutions, you know, I mean, it was before it was open telemetry, it was open tracing, before which it was, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a patchy record, but I do see people actually embracing open telemetry in large numbers. And I do think it's kind of inevitable. And so the sooner you do it, the better. And it's really good for users. Because if you've instrumented your code using open telemetry, all of the big vendors and small vendors have embraced it to some extent or another. Honeycomb is all in an hotel, but you know, New Relic, the data dogs, the splunks of the world are also in a new relic in an hotel, which means that if you've instrumented your code for hotel, you can switch from one to the other with almost no change. It's almost as simple as just like changing a variable in your config, which is amazing because it it's, you know, all of those sunk costs, you know, that's what keeps people with vendors way more than their love for them. It's like, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> you know, that's why most people have their, their monitoring vendors, right? And this forces to vendors to compete on actual user experience instead of just relying on being locked in. So it's very good for users. It is getting a lot of traction. It does seem to be the future and it is absolutely worth in learning and, and doing. That's so exciting. That's a good segue into a question that, well, it was actually Jerome's question, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, Take it. Go for it. it. We have one brain. (laughs) Well, the question of like, or like you brought up, like it's the future. And the whole idea behind an observability tool and particularly Honeycomb is about the unknown unknowns. And I'm wondering like, how far does that go? Is this the end all be all for like software development in the future? Given an observability tool, you will forever be able to prod and poke and ask questions of your system. Uh, Are we in the future now? (laughs) We are in a version of the future. So I feel like, you know, the whole metrics, you know, you think of like software as being like, you know, the tree of life, (laughs) you know, metrics is, is something is the first metrics were written in like, you know, the seventies, you know, and, and a metric is, you know, there's a generic term metrics and there's a specific term metric, which is a metric is just a single number with some tags appended so you can find it. Right. And the metrics heritage is long and vast. And it is, I think just about come to an end. We're starting to realize the limitations of the model and just, you know, Datadog and Prometheus are probably the last best versions of that technology that will ever be built, in my opinion. There's kind of no reason to, they do all the things you can possibly do with metrics, and they're all trying to like branch out from that because they, they recognize that they're at the end of the road. Observability tooling is new. And while I would like to say that we've got it all figured out and all cornered and blah, 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 I'm waiting for other vendors to have achieved what I would call observability so that we can start competing I don't want to compete with them on the on the level of, well, we're the only ones who do it, because that means it doesn't really matter that much. You know, it's not real until, you know, and I know that they're doing this on the back end. I know that they're competing. I know that they're trying to catch up. It's just that they can't move as quickly as we can because they're so big. But then again, they have like thousands of engineers to throw at the problem. So it's inevitable that they will, right? But observability will, will, will change too. Part of this is driven by 
the cost of storage, right? Spinning Rust, you are never going to be able to achieve observability, just like you can know, only tune your databases so far, right? And it wasn't until RAM got cheap, SSDs got cheap, that we're able to do these things by like storing the raw arbitrarily wide structured data blobs and then doing read time analytics on top of it, right? It's far more wasteful. Metrics are super cheap, but they're super limited in what they can do. Whereas, you know, the building blocks of observability are much richer, much more, you know, wasteful when it comes to storage, but you can do way more powerful things. 10 years from now, when, you know, <laughs> SSDs are pennies and, you know, RAM is like nothing, you know, I think that there will probably almost certainly be more people who are moving to more of a, or additionally having sort of a, a real time, just sort of almost like GDB in production, where you're just like, you're catching snapshots of your code as it's passing through your, you know, your system without, with a very light impact on it, which, which is not really feasible right now with, if you have any kind of scale. But I think that the honeycomb model is going to endure for quite some time because it's a real step function or two better than what we've had till now. And if people actually embrace it and adopt it, you know, we'll figure out how to make it even better. But I think of observability as being a way to debug systems almost more than code. The hardest problem in most distributed systems is not fixing the code, it's finding where in the system is the code that you need to fix. And that's the problem that observability is just amazing at solving. But actually finding your code, you know, I think in the future, like IDEs are kind of going to merge with observability tools so that you're literally kind of debugging as you're, there was this great um, study that Facebook published about the cost of finding and fixing bugs. And it's like, okay, you just typed a bug, you backspace, that's the cheapest and fastest it's ever going to get, right? But then the amount of, the, the longer it goes before you find and fix that bug, the cost of finding and fixing it goes up like exponentially. So in the future, and I've seen some academics working on some amazing stuff here where they basically like do these like mini graphs of like, they can kind of predict how it's going to run in production based on how it has run in production and how some analysis of the algorithm. So they can tell you as you're typing, oh, this algorithm is going to be way less, you know, efficient than the one that you are, than, than you had, or this one looks better. So, you know, just kind of collapse. And, and the stuff that Dark is doing, Dark playing, where it's just like you're developing in production and there's there's no delivery pipeline at all. Like that stuff is the future. That stuff is the future. And I feel like it's going to be a solid decade or maybe two before we get there. But like, that's clearly the way because it's just, it collapses that time to finding resolving bugs, which is so expensive for organizations to do. What I'm hearing is like, observability is almost like a, like a design principle. It's like it's yeah. something that gets integrated with like the, the systems that we architect. For sure. I think the main tension that I feel these days is that you have like observability is inextricably tied to the tooling and that additional tooling breeds additional complexity. And I feel like some, at some point we'll have the technology needed to be able to simplify those things. Well, the hope is that everyone embraces OTEL and can then quickly and easily switch from their, their let's say, deprecated provider <laughs> onto Honeycomb without having to re-instrument everything. Well, and the hope is that people will start using Honeycomb earlier in the process, because you're right, the friction of changing midstream, it's mind-boggling that anyone would do it. <laughs> I still can't believe that anyone does it. I didn't want to do it. I resisted the hell out of it at Facebook. It wasn't until our intern or somebody from Facebook actually came over, and <laughs> we were using Ganglia, right? We had five years of effort going into this 
fucking disaster of a metric system. But like, but we knew it, right? We knew it, and we didn't want to reinstrument everything. Um, but you know how Ganglia has like a XML file dump, like var temp, you know, Ganglia XML, whatever, and it dumps state there once a minute. Well, this guy on our team like wrote a cron job to take that state file and munge it into events and feed it into scuba once a minute. And like, this is not a great way to see your events in scuba, but like it was enough for me to like, you know, I, I knew the old variable names and the structure of the data. And so I could find it in the new stuff. And it was so much more powerful to be able to slice and dice there. That was like, ah, fuck. Okay. Yeah. I see the benefit. This is, we have to do this because we're dying. Otherwise, you know, we're going to up and down constantly. It's really humiliating to me as a professional. And, and we so often just have no idea what's happening. Like, we don't know. Sometimes it fixes itself. We're just like, what just happened? You know, we could spend the rest of our day trying to figure it out. Or we could move on and get some work done. And after that happens day after day, you just get numb to it. And it's just awful, right? And like we were doing microservices before there were microservices, right? We were doing a lot of these newer development paradigms without, and the world didn't really understand the, the problems of them yet. Um, so we were fighting them with our face, basically. <laughs> and and so that's the story of how we did, we got into scuba and, and it changed my life. <laughs> I want to go back to what you were saying earlier, like shifting tooling, shifting vendors is like such a heavy lift. And that I just saw Honeycomb is now offering uh, metrics on their apprentice tier. And why I want to dig into that is, well, one, I think that's like a great on-ramp. And also, I don't remember which blog post I was reading, but you said that kind of maybe metrics are for understanding the system, whereas observability is understanding the application. And so it's like there, it sounds like there's a place for metrics. There is a place for metrics. Absolutely. The thing is that you can derive metrics from these wide events and you can't go in the other direction. You can't get events from metrics. So yeah, there's absolutely, there are many places where metrics are valuable. You know, you derive them so you can store them cheaply over time, like an RRD format, basically, or you can think of it as being a perspective problem. If you're a person who's responsible for systems, traditional ops land, you spend most of your time going, is my system healthy, right? Is the service healthy? Is the system healthy? Is this database healthy? And you're asking about that from the perspective of the system, right? And so what you actually care about there is the aggregates, because that tells you for capacity planning, it tells you when there's errors and everything, it works just great, as long as you don't actually care about the user's experience. <laughs> if you're developing the software, you have a very different perspective. You want the perspective to be not from the system, but from the user and from every single user. And you want to know if every single user is having a good experience or not, which is a completely separate question from the question of, is my service healthy or not? It can be very healthy and your users can be having a shit experience. It can be unhealthy and your users can have a great experience. Like they're just almost disconnected from each other. So yeah, there are lots of places where metrics are useful. And I think that infrastructure versus applications is a big one. The reason that we built it, like first you said, it's a bridge. It's a really great bridge like we did with Ganglia to just like see your world and ours. And second, like there are a few metrics which even, you know, software engineers who are operating farther than stack need to know. You know, if you shipped a change and your memory usage just ballooned, you need to know about that. If you shipped a change and your CPU is now grinding and thrashing, you need to know about that. If it's now consuming disk space, you need to know about that. But those three are pretty much the only ones that you really consistently need to know. You don't really need to know about 
you know, the entire proc file system and all of the low level counters for, you know, this IPv6 counter and that IPv4 route. And, you know, you don't care <laughs> and you shouldn't care. The system is broken if you have to care. Right. And so much of the platforms that you develop on now, like serverless and whatnot, even if you care, you can't see it. So you just kind of have to learn to develop your code in a different way where you're using your instrumentation to probe the environment around you. But you're also cognizant that sometimes you just need to like abandon it and try again. <laughs> so I think that we're consultants and a lot of times we come in and we make recommendations about tooling and, and things like that. And we have to make a case uh, for either something that we've used in the past or explain observability to a client or something like that. And it's really tough to buy-in for a vendor. Like it, it's just, it's really difficult to do that. You have to sit in on the sales meetings and um, you have to have influence within the organization to be able to affect those types of things. So a lot of our colleagues are wondering what's like a low touch or, or low fidelity way to start introducing the idea of observability to a client, or, you know, you don't even have to be a consultant just to your team so that you can start getting familiar with these concepts. So first of all, I think What's really interesting to realize is that people only think that the way they're doing things now is easy because it's easy to them because it's what they grew up doing. If you take kids out of college and you put them in front of like a data dog or a honeycomb, they understand honeycomb so much more easily than they understand what those data dog graphs are. It's just it's speaking to them in the language of their code, you know, and and it just makes sense. It's more intuitive, you know, you break down, you, you know, there's all of these, you know, contortions that we have to stretch ourselves into in order to get meaning out of these graphs. And you can't like take a metrics graph and like slice it and dice it and dive down deeper or follow the trail of breadcrumbs. You're just kind of flipping through dashboards is all you're doing. And there's not really a story there. So the way that people are doing it now is the hard way. <laughs> How much that helps or not is kind of, you know, we kind of have to like help a generation grow up seeing it a different way, but we can coexist really well with existing solutions like, you know, your data dogs and your new relics. And eventually everyone runs into a wall with those solutions. You just can't ask the question that you need to ask. You just can't, you know, it's usually something high cardinality, you know, you just want to ask something about each of your users. Whoop, can't do that. You want to ask something about each of your nodes. Whoop, can't do that. You know, you just can't do that. And people get frustrated. And when you tell them, here's a solution where you can at least solve that problem. And they tend to take to it pretty quickly. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is like, you almost want to lead them to the point of where they feel that pain yeah. like viscerally to be able to say, oh, you know, there's, there's an easier way of doing this. That was our entire first couple years of marketing strategy was taking the people who were just like, you know, if you say the words like infinite custom metrics to somebody who's used to using metrics tools, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just like you get infinite custom metrics because they're not metrics. They're just fields in the events. You can, they're effectively free. Just add more of them, you know. But we've worked really hard, too, to make onboarding easy so that you should just have to, like, install a library, install a package or whatever, and you get it running basically from the start. And you can go in and you could do more instrumentation. You can, you know, introduce spans and all this stuff. But you don't have to. You actually get a lot of value out of just, even just if you're using like Nginx or something or, you know, Amazon's, you know, VPCs, even just using it for your web logs lets you like slice and dice and figure out where the errors are coming from in the system, you know. So 
we've made it as easy as we can. There's some compelling reasons to use it, but I definitely recognize that like generations have grown up learning to think about it in a very different way. So eh, it's kind of the hill that we're on right now. I'm just really curious, Charity, what if there's anything that you're really excited about right now, either in observability or management practices or, or things that you're seeing out in the world that make a lot of sense to you and you want to experiment with or you want to kind of spread the word about? You know, I probably would have said Otel if we hadn't already covered all that. It's really exciting to me that, you know, we're, we're starting to standardize in something, finally. I have been taking a lot of heart from, to this day, the blog posts that people seem to associate me with the most is the pendulum one. And which means that I get pinged from people like all over the world when they've decided to give up management and go back to engineering. And they're just like, I'm so happy now. <laughs> they're like, I couldn't have done it unless, you know, I read this. And I'm just like, and it's just like these little droplets of joy that keep feeding me. It's, it's like, it makes me so happy to see people doing what they love. And it's like, yes, one more unhappy manager down for the count and happy engineers springing up. So, you know, that brings joy to my life. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that post and I actually just shared it with uh with our internal team that's looking at senior career pathing uh <laughs> for ourselves. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, the whole myth that there's just one one direction and you must like climb, 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 climb. It's so pernicious, you know? It's more like you reach a level of fluency and then you get to explore. And sometimes you may like climb the hierarchy, sometimes you may go down the hierarchy. If we can just like drain hierarchy of its poison <laughs> of its power dynamics and it's and it's like we associate in our little monkey brains with being better and more powerful and stuff which makes it really hard for the ego to take what feels like a step down um, but it's so unhealthy because honestly the higher up you get in double quotes the farther you get away from doing the real work which is what brings most people actual satisfaction is seeing their code in the wild fixing problems with their hands, seeing users happy, knowing that they contributed. You know, when you're like three or four levels above that, you know, it gets very, you know, the altitude's pretty high. <laughs> it's a little thin up there. Charity, thank you so much. You've been such a generous guest. Yeah, absolutely. You asked me questions that I've never heard before. So. Oh, yay. That's Good awesome. <laughs> That was our goal because you're, you're so generous. I mean, all of your writing, um, and we'll include it all in the show notes. Um, you're on Twitter. You have your Ollycast. Uh, you write the company blog, your personal blog. You do talks. I mean, um, you are definitely, uh, like we said at the beginning, someone we were super stoked to talk to. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Jerome? <laughs> Thomas? I. Just can't with that conversation. That was so amazing. Agreed. Yes. I am like buzzing. I can tell. <laughs> there was so much more I wanted to talk about and that we could have gotten to. I'm so grateful for the time that we had. Likewise. Just my big takeaway is like that this is engineering. Say more. Yeah. Observability isn't this like magical, you know, uh, silver bullet, if you will, thing that you just like plug into your system and then like you're off to the races. Mind you, Honeycomb clearly has done a lot of the work to make that as frictionless and seamless as possible. But at the end of the day, like the principles, and I like what you said, like, is this a 
design principle, like the principles behind instrumenting your system to be observable and what to do with that information and how to act on it is engineering. And if you don't have the tooling for that, or you don't have the the mindset for that, then that's really a question about you know your team dynamic or the structures in place or the environment that you work in. And that needs cultivated just like you know the tooling does. But ultimately, like it's not magic. It's not some secret thing. It's it really is just like hardcore. Not even hardcore. I mean, it's it's engineering. <laughs> hardcore. <laughs> hardcore. I just, you know, I don't want to put it on a, a pedestal. I think it can feel, at least for me, like can feel hardcore, like, whoa, data and, you know, but any engineer, I think in the right environment, given the correct tools and space and time can be as good as any engineer out there. So anyway, I think that that's what was really like. I love that charity issue is so humble and so willing to share everything that goes into it. And you're like, wow, that's, that's engineering. How about for you? Like, what are you, I, I can see you're like, you're really excited I'm and buzzing too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're saying things that really resonate with me. Um, I think like taking your idea of it's engineering that really resonated with me too. Like we talked about how there was this seam that we created between engineering and ops as a way to kind of specialize and how probably that seem should have never existed in the first place. And that to me has the implications that observability is going to be kind of like this fundamental thing or is starting to be this fundamental thing, much like clean code or testing your code. And it's going to be kind of this, this cornerstone of quality for systems now and and in the future. It was just really exciting to have the expert on observability (laughs) come and talk to us, chat about what it is, what it isn't, how to get started in it. I was just really stoked for the conversation and it delivered uh, in ways that I couldn't even imagine. And Charity, just a heads up, we'll be reaching out again so we can do a part two. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And yeah, I mean... Just a, a little meta commentary, like just every question that we were like, you know, as we were doing research for this episode, it's like every question we thought we had, like she had found a way to answer, <laughs> whether it was a blog or, you know, podcast or a talk, like so generous and just so much to unpack and to dig into. So this was just exciting on so many friends. I mean, this is like, I guess this is what a celebrity sighting feels like. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my gosh, you're here. Hi. Oh, I'm a nerd. It's fine. It's fine. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Collaborative Craft. Check out the show notes for a link to this episode's transcript and to learn more about our guest. Collaborative Craft is brought to you by Eighthlight and produced by our friends at Dante32. Eighthlight is a software consultancy dedicated to increasing the quality of software in the world by partnering with our clients to deliver custom solutions to ambitious projects. To learn more about Eighthlight and how we can help you grow your software development and design capabilities, visit our website at eighthlight.com. 
Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to Collaborative Craft wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at at CollabCraftCast to join in the conversation and let us know who you'd like to hear from next. We'd love to hear from you. Bye.